G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. And how about yourself? I'm going well. Going really well today. I, I very much enjoyed last week's podcast, and, and Dad, I must admit, I'm still riding the wave a little bit of the Geelong Premiership, and we'll be continuing the theme of groups today, and so I'll very much feel a bit part of that group in terms of the supporter group over the last couple of weeks. So, so I've enjoyed that aspect of things. Well, you've seen some of that from a bit of an inner circle there as well. Like I'm certainly a fan, as you know, our whole family are fans and it was just wonderful going to the grand final. But yes, because you do the Cats podcast while you were there yesterday amongst the celebrations. I liked seeing the picture of you holding up the Premiership Cup. So yeah, no doubt that was a bit of a highlight for you for the year. Oh, certainly a highlight, but I think Inner Circle is pretty generous, Dad. I reckon oh, I'm very grateful for the vantage point that I do have. But, um, Dad, we've called today's episode Enhancing Mental Health in Groups. And I'll tell you what, a, a cat's premiership has enhanced my mental health a little bit. So what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, so we're going to be looking at some of the benefits in particular of group therapy. But it's not just going to be about group therapy because any groups are going to go through certain kind of stages or a certain kind of process or have certain kind of features to them. And so when talking about group therapy, people will be able to reflect on even different work groups they've been involved with, or to some extent even friendship groups. But when we look at group therapy, it's a medium which is often underused because it could be quite Difficult and time-consuming to set up therapy groups. There's a lot of a preamble to getting them going. And then you need to find participants who you think the group really suits and then everyone has to have a time that they can all turn up together week after week if it's that kind of group. And so there are many logistical difficulties, but when it happens... Group therapy can be especially helpful for people who share some kind of similar themes or challenges in life. There's a lot of extra benefit that people can get sometimes from a group process over and above what they can get from individual therapy. So it's not an either or thing. Some people benefit from groups as well as individual therapy, but we're going to be highlighting some of the extra benefits that people can get from that group process. And last week, of course, we spoke about the documentary that you're involved in, How to Thrive, and the maybe specific group that was involved in that documentary and some of the, the benefits that that group went through. But I suppose I'm going to enjoy, I suppose, maybe talking a little bit more broadly about, say, group therapy and, and just groups in general, what we can get from groups today. Because I think, you know, looking at some of this sort of stuff throughout the week, even just thinking, you know, about some of maybe the groups that I'm involved in and this sort of thing, I think having a bit more of an awareness of some of this stuff can allow us to maybe get a little bit more out of the groups that we're involved in too. Yes, and so much of life is around our connections with other people. And as we've talked about before, maybe too much of psychology tends to be too individualistic. The therapy that we offer is nearly always offered in an individual or one-to-one context that's in psychiatry and psychology generally. It's mainly been in certain hospital or rehabilitation settings that often groups would be used, but even then, I think underused, so it's worth considering and at least appreciating what groups can offer. Well, it's one of those things I remember we spoke about it last week in terms of, you know, in popular culture, how most of the therapy that we see is individual therapy, you know, movies like Goodwill Hunting, all this sort of stuff. But you made actually the point to me off air last week, which I thought was really interesting in terms of 
the main group therapy that we see these days is, for example, on shows like, you know, Married at First Sight, where the, you know, quote unquote psychologist, who I'm sure he's a psychologist, but clearly he's been able to, you know, get past some ethical considerations. But when they're almost in that situation where, you know, having a conversation with people and it seems that the producers of the show, you know, maybe want them to, you know, start a bit of conflict and maybe it's not a group therapy process that's conducive to maybe the best mental health for everyone. So I think it would be good to maybe unpack a little bit what the group therapy process actually does involve, maybe rather than some of the examples that we've seen on TV. Yes, and certainly those reality TV shows, I'd say it is a group process, but I wouldn't call it a group therapy process because, as you're suggesting, that often the idea of those programs is to generate ratings, and one of the ways of doing that is to create conflict and controversy. So, as I understand it, often people are chosen, participants are chosen for those shows to have some predictable conflict come up between them, to have different personality attributes where they're likely to rub against each other in the wrong kind of ways but might be in some ways titillating for the viewer and I think that's unfortunate if that's one of the main ways we see groups and group interactions portrayed. Well certainly and and well dad I know you've got a little bit of experience in terms of some of the groups that you've run where you've had some really interesting experiences out of those groups that maybe allude to some of the benefits from groups in itself. So do you want to maybe give us a sense of what those experiences were with those groups of people? Yes, well, one I'll mention straight off the top, one of the favourite groups that I ran, I ran this every year for 10 years, was called the Taking a Step Forward group. It was a group for people with avoidant personality characteristics So the other way of describing it is this was a group for people who hated the idea of being in a group because they all had significant social anxiety. So avoidant tendencies, we have a handout on that that many people respond to around the social anxiety that goes with that, the difficulty facing challenging situations. Well, this was particularly where people have difficulties in social interactions. So it was quite remarkable because people would start off for the first group and they'd meet in the waiting room. They'd look around, they'd be surprised because the other people looked normal. But to them, they felt like they had two heads. And they'd look just really weird or stand out as different or not belonging. And so they started to realise, look, wait a minute, if these other people seem like kind of normal, well, maybe I look more normal than I would have thought. But then particularly they'd get in the group the first week and we'd go around and we'd ask people in turn to say why they joined the group. They'd often be stunned to hear the commonality of difficulties, the excruciating anxiety at times people would find when looking to strike up a conversation with a stranger or the difficulty turning up to a job interview or how much they'd hate it if they had a job and they're meant to be working on a front desk and people's ways of looking to avoid being in this particular situation where they'd have certain more intense or more expected interactions with other people. But when they saw that commonality, that really helped. It really helped normalise them. And it meant that when they were, in a sense, going out of the comfort zone, which they did by turning up to the group itself, we could say at the end of the first group, well, congratulations, everyone. All of you have succeeded in dealing with this challenge today by going out of the comfort zone and being here. And that was a wonderful thing for people to acknowledge together. But the other thing I'll say with that group as well that was so striking and important in a group setting is when people have avoidant tendencies, they almost universally downplay their own achievements. 
And this would become a group joke because people would kind of acknowledge everyone else's achievements. Oh, wow, you did that and what courage and, gee, I wish I could do that like you. And they'd completely disown their own. But they'd recognise that in each other. They'd see this kind of group joke and they'd start after a while to pick themselves up and, oh, yeah, I missed that, didn't I? You know, big things like... A person at a follow-up said, oh, everyone else has done all these major things and I've done nothing in the last couple of months. Oh, but uh, anyway, I did enjoy a holiday in Sydney and we did that bridge climb and that was good. And we stopped and said, wait a minute, did you say you did the bridge climb, not the Sydney Harbour Bridge? Yeah. Don't you have a fear of heights? <laughs> well, yeah, actually I do. I've had a, a phobia of that. And the, Well, wait a minute, isn't that some kind of achievement? The person stops and shyly chuckles a little bit oh maybe oh yeah sometimes we need other people to point things out for it to get through our heads a bit more and that was one of the really helpful things of those groups that seems like a a great group to run obviously because it seems like a lot of the people wouldn't have a lot of experience being in a group in terms of you know if you had a, a significant avoidant personality disorder, potentially even the groups that you were in, you know, you wouldn't feel a part of that group and you wouldn't recognise yourself to be in that group. And so what strikes me from that is that going through that experience, then people would have the experience of being in a group. And it's almost like an, an intro to groups sort of thing. And, and so, yeah, I can see how people would have got a lot of benefit from that. Yes, so one of the main features of avoidance, as we've talked about in the past, that social avoidance is feeling... I don't fit in. I don't belong. So for people to recognise they did belong in this group, even it's because they felt so excruciatingly anxious when they were in a group, that gave the sense of the belonging at the start, but then they did connect up with people in different ways. Because many of them had quite good social skills. Some didn't. They were quite socially awkward in some ways, and then they had the practice in a group in a way that you don't get practising with a therapist. If you're in a group, you are interacting with other peers, other people that you might meet in the street or in an organisation or in your workday or something like that. So they had that practice. And one of the wonderful things is over a period of time, many developed friendships. For example, one got married, had a child, and then another group member became the godmother for the child. They'd celebrate wins like someone starting up a business or getting a promotion that they'd been very hesitant to go for. They'd really celebrate each other's wins. And with that group, one of them met for five years afterwards. They kept meeting for coffee afterwards. So that was a, a wonderful kind of thing. Now, people aren't going to be able to generate those same kind of experiences in individual therapy quite naturally. So it's a more direct milieu for something like that where the difficulty is people's connection, then create the opportunity for connections, you need a group to do that most effectively. And what it sounds like is a, an aspect of that group, but I suppose other groups that I've been involved in that I can relate to from what you were speaking about there is, I remember one time I was on a, on a webinar actually, and you know, it was, I think it was during the pandemic, it was a Zoom sort of conference-y kind of program, and it was being led by someone, and and he was asking everyone, you know, individually, you know, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And I think it was someone said, oh, yeah, I don't know. And, you know, you're the one sort of running the course or whatever. And he had this really kind of good way of putting it in terms of, well, you know, I can just sort of sit here and project or, you know, we can create a campfire scenario where, you know, everyone sits around the campfire and everyone feels, you know, that they can put into something. And it seems to me that, yeah, that was certainly a facet of that group, but all kind of, I suppose, inclusive and supportive groups almost have that campfire aspect, even if there is a leader within the group. 
Yes, and that gets across the idea too, is we've all got our different attributes and we've all got our different viewpoints. And then the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, if we can put that together. And other people might have a different way of looking at things or doing things that helps us see things in a new way. A lot of therapy is about seeing things in a new way. So if you have a multiplicity of viewpoints, which you necessarily are going to get more when you have a group of people, then that can really help. And in terms of seeing things in a new way, I believe there was another group who they may have even maybe changed their viewpoint in terms of when they were within the group and when they were maybe interacting more informally with each other. So do you want to talk about maybe how, I believe it was a work cover group and and maybe how their interactions maybe, I suppose, alluded to something within their group? Yes, that was quite remarkable. So over the years, I'd seen many individuals through the work cover system or TAC, the Transport Accident Commission, and many people who'd been physically injured and also had psychological injuries like post-traumatic stress. And so it was very difficult for many of those people to return to work and they might be off work for a period of years and also many of them were facing medico-legal assessments that were very challenging in different ways. Many found it quite invalidating. So when seeing many people in individual therapy, it was difficult for it not to just go back to some kind of list of complaints and difficulties that people had. And so it's almost like each session that people would come in, there'd be repeated themes to it and it was slow progress for many people to make a change. And many did have chronic physical injuries and chronic pain and depression, anxiety-related difficulties, social isolation. It was partly the social isolation as well. thought, look, it's probably going to be better have these people join in a group. At least that's some social interaction they're going to get. And we'll probably talk about something other than pain and trauma reactions and anxiety. Just by having a group of people together, you tend to talk about different things. But what struck me about this group is we had certain kind of rituals, like I'd go and get a cup of coffee or tea for each participant in the group at the start of the group. There might be half a dozen people in the group. It was a group that was going over a number of years as well, and it was an open group, meaning people could come and go, but many were there for a period of at least two or three years before they had maybe their court case, would come up with some determination, and often people continued in the group for about a year or so after that, and then they would tend to move on. But what happened in this group is when I go and get the cup of coffee or tea, I just hear this chat, chat, chat in the room, light chat. Now you can imagine people meet weekly for six months, 12 months. They're getting to know each other a bit. There's laughter, chat, chat, chat. I come back into the room, hand out the cups of tea, sit down and look to start the group. Then everyone starts looking grim. They'll start looking serious. And it was difficult because in some ways my role was to also monitor and ask people about their difficulties and to have some focus on pain and post-traumatic stress. But you talk about these things and, well, the person's like, well, dare I say, feeling like an invalid or feeling like someone with mental health problems or feeling even like a victim in some kind of ways who's really having difficulty managing with what's happened to them. It's really difficult to get around that kind of mindset. But we would sometimes then get on to what hobbies people were engaging with. We did introduce positive psychology principles. We'd look at people's character strengths and get some conversations going that way. But by the same token, what joined people often was problems. 
and it just showed the expectation that people had through, especially the work cover system, TIC system, to come in and to describe the difficulties that they had. A bit of that focus, dare I say, on the negative, what wasn't working in their life. But then they'd leave, they'd be at the front for another 10 minutes, chat to chat, chat to chat. The neighbour came in a couple of times and said, can you get these people to move on? They're making too much noise outside our house. So in other words, when they were together themselves without that, dare I say, psychological focus, there was something more normal and connected about them. And so we looked to generate some of that in the group and would have conversations about the football or different kind of things that people would relate to. And we'd particularly focus on the hobbies that people had or different things that they were doing. Oh, actually, one thing I mentioned that would really helped in this group is one day someone paused and he said, wait a minute, we've been coming to this group weekly for last two years or whatever. We all sit here whinging. You know, look, each week we're whinging again and again and again. I don't know if that does much good for ourselves, just whinging. Now, I could not have said that as a group leader without coming across as very invalidating. But that fellow could say that. He'd gained the trust, and dare I say the friendship, of many others in the group setting. And so he could challenge. Now, the more healthy groups are going to have some level of confrontation and challenge. A lot of support, but also the challenge. But that made it more real. But I think the groups generally, even with that difficulty of people tending to focus on problems, and it did improve after he confronted people in that way, Still, though, there was a lot of focus on problems and many were experiencing chronic pain. But in a group setting, people can remember, I'm also a person, I'm also, well, a football follower or I'm also a coin collector or I'm also a gardener and these other kind of things. And they could describe those different characteristics. Whereas if someone's fronting up to a therapist each week, dare I say there's a little bit of a different gradient. There's a person who's seemingly relatively well, probably is relatively well, and there's a person who's relatively unwell, and it's hard to get around that dynamic. But in a group, people can be more free, and dare I say, even accepting themselves with each other. They can see, look, there are others that are dealing with the same challenges that I am. It's not like I'm meeting with this relatively healthy person each time and just being reminded by what problems I've got. And what strikes me about that too is like it, it seems that there's such a almost a, a richness that can come out of groups. It's almost like when it takes on a life of its own. Like in that situation, you had a leader and you had some group participants, but that group participant became a leader and it took the group in a direction that was really positive for the group as well. Absolutely, and actually there's a different group I can remember that way. It was actually a group for people who, dare I say, met the criteria for borderline personality disorder, meaning significant difficulties with regulating their emotions, dealing with impulses, uh, difficulty in their relationships with other people and conflict in certain ways. And fun enough, in that group, which you could imagine was a somewhat chaotic group in some ways, it was an open group, people would come and go, but there was usually at least one other person within the group who almost organically took on kind of like a co-leader role, a person who maybe had been in the group for some time but was developing, dare I say, more healthy habits in certain ways and ready to take on some of that responsibility. And again, it evened things out a little bit more for others to be conveying some relatively helpful and I think therapeutic messages to their peers. And so it does count more when it comes from a peer, the group leader. People can think, oh, wait a minute, 
Like you believe that you're not just being paid to say that or you're not just using some kind of therapy approach with me. If someone makes an observation or gives some feedback or encouragement and they're a peer, there's something that can count more from that. So we sometimes have the rule of thumb. If a group member, participant, other than the psychologist or the therapist leader says something, it's worth twice the value than if the leader said that exact same thing. And so, Dad, one of the things we spoke about last week was the impact of trauma on groups, but I believe there was a specific post-traumatic stress disorder group that you ran. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that and what came out of that group? Okay, so this was many years ago when I worked in Heidelberg, so this is going right back to the early 90s, and what struck me is in our mental health team, we had a psychiatrist, social worker, OT, nurse, myself as a psychologist, a team, and each week at least a couple of people who'd been recently admitted would come into the team meeting and be interviewed about their difficulties and we'd discuss it as a team. Now, because this was a hospital that had a unit for war veterans, a mental health facility, so where people were hospitalised at that stage, then these people generally had a background in Vietnam experience. But what struck me is each person would be asked and commented about their depression and their anxiety and their alcohol problems or maybe their anger or their feeling of disconnection from other people. There'd be a review of medication, maybe different things that were happening in their everyday life or struggles that they had just before they came in, some stress or might have been a loss of job or something like that. But what we weren't talking about is each of these people who came in had experienced the Vietnam War in some shape or form 20 to 25 years earlier. Now, they were mostly traumatised in addition to having depression, anxiety and alcohol problems and anger problems. There was a pattern that many of them had that often goes with chronic trauma reactions. We thought, look, wait a minute. These people are coming in and in a sense being interviewed and treated in isolation, but they share something in common they would have had, for many of them, overwhelming experiences that they'd never fully recovered from. And many of them did have nightmares, many of them did have flashbacks, many of them had been quite disconnected from other people in different ways. Their peer relationships were more troubled, they had more anger problems. The kind of problems that many people would have as young men when they were in Vietnam, and there was something about their personality development that was harmed by the trauma that they experienced at the time. We thought, look wait a minute, maybe we should look at this commonality and develop a PTSD program. Now, PTSD program didn't just mean they had PTSD and ignore the depression or anxiety. We still acknowledged all these other problems, but we said, yes, but there was some other central experience that many of them shared, an experience of having been traumatised in Vietnam because certainly 25% of people who went to Vietnam, certainly as soldiers, would have experienced post-traumatic stress disorder. And another 25% again would have experienced a more mild form of that condition. Now, you can imagine if people are hospitalised for any mental health problem many years later, disproportionately, a large proportion of them are going to have some significant post-traumatic stress. So what we did is we looked at the programs they were already involved in. Unfortunately, there was a relaxation group and there was an anger management group and a general discussion group and a fitness group. But what we thought, why don't we add a psychoeducational group about post-traumatic stress disorder related to their Vietnam experience 
and we started up a PTSD program. Many of them had also been getting individual therapy from myself and other psychologists. So we wove that in and tied that in with the program. We included this psychoeducation on post-traumatic stress. We used an evaluation before and after. They were admitted to hospital. We set up a, a group program that each week had different themes, including themes that directly related to post-traumatic stress. And the thing is, the veterans really appreciated this. They felt really seen and heard in the difficulties that they had because it was highlighting how some of their long-term difficulties were more understandable from that, well, at times, otherworldly experience that they had in Vietnam. Now, they could informally talk about that with each other when they were on the ward, and they commonly did in the evenings, and not always in the most healthy way. They might have been comparing notes on how you apply for compensation, which is relevant, but it's not the whole story. Now, getting people together and looking at what strategies that they used also to deal with their post-traumatic stress, that helped in a different way, but particularly that sense of belonging and connection and acceptance and understanding of each other. They felt more connected with each other around that. And many of those veterans conveyed how much they appreciated that group. And many of them really encouraged other people to join that. And I was very proud to see how that group continued in different ways and it evolved further and went beyond just the focus on post-traumatic stress, but looked at how the other kind of reactions are certainly related to war experience as well. And certainly... That program continued and developed in various forms over the next 20 or so years. And with the evaluations that we did, that we presented at different conferences, that actually helped lead to the National Centre for PTSD being located at Heidelberg Hospital that then evolved into the Phoenix Institute. And so that's a wonderful organisation, a national organisation, advising people on war-related trauma and the impacts of trauma. And so... I think that our group of people contributed to that, the different health professionals, social worker, OT, myself, others, who got together to help create that initial program. It made it a more understandable, comprehensible range of difficulties that people had, and they felt very validated by acknowledging that part of their experience. Well, I remember I, I used to work in a job where I sat basically in a cubicle with someone who'd been to Vietnam, an older gentleman and a tremendous fella. And... He, one of the things that he was talking about was the invalidation that people who went to Vietnam experienced when they returned home because, you know, like I wasn't alive, but all the politics of the time and the fact that the war was basically the first one being shown on video back home and so people got to see exactly what war was like. So it seems from my understanding that there was so much invalidation within the experience of those Vietnam vets and it seems that part of what that program did was almost validate them in terms of saying, hey, your experience is, is worth looking at in terms of, you know, it's, it's worth thinking about because there was maybe a push to ignore some of their experience because of the politics of the situation at the time. Yes, you really hit the nail on the head with that because there's something about trauma itself which is an invalidating experience. So just say, imagine someone is on a battlefield and there's a bullet whizzing along. It might pass one metre to the left of their head, or one metre to the right, or it might land in the middle of their forehead. Like, in terms of trauma, the person's will doesn't count for much. The same if someone's sexually abused. Their will doesn't count for much in this situation. They're just treated like an object. 
And so they don't have a sense of agency in that situation. It's just, in a sense, sometimes luck whether people survive, but also people will have different kind of memories of life-threatening situations or situations that absolutely undermine their integrity. So trauma itself is invalidating. So when people came back from Vietnam, often in the early hours of morning, so that they wouldn't be seen by the general public, they'd be whisked away, then they might be, some young fellow finds himself in the hotel the next day, maybe having a few beers with other people, feeling completely dislocated. Some people were more likely to have their anger come out in different ways, in unhelpful kind of ways. But also the fact that some people did have more anger reactions that would lead to stigma or other difficulties that people had could lead to stigma. And so... The fact that the Vietnam War was so unpopular did lead to those people being invalidated all over again. So there's the invalidation from the trauma, then there's the invalidation from the community response. There's actually a community-wide group response, community response, that made the biggest difference to many. It was when they had a welcome home parade in Sydney, I think in 1988, that made a huge difference to people because it accepted the commonality of their experience and it saw them and acknowledged them. And in a different way, our group program, our PTSD group program, acknowledged and saw people and didn't dismiss their reactions as, look, I might say, some of those early meetings as a psychiatrist would describe, oh, this person's suffering from id anxiety. That comes from the first six years of your life. Thinking, wait a minute, one person's coming in after the other with all sorts of problems with alcohol and anger and things that we know are related to PTSD. Couldn't it also be partly that they've got difficulties from Vietnam? Now, I made a big difference to acknowledge that right up front. Well, it strikes me that for that group of people, in terms of people who've been to Vietnam, like what benefit being in a group could be, but lots of other groups of people too. And so I think it would even be good to maybe drill down some of the benefits of being in a group a little bit more broadly now. So, so Dad, we, we spoke about a little bit of it last week, but what are some of those benefits to being in a group? Okay, and so just thinking about this, there's some that came off the top of my head and then we'll also talk about some of the principles often recognised in group therapy about how they're helpful. But if I think off the top of my head, well, it is the most general principle that's acknowledged, the principle of universality, meaning being able to relate to other people. Our experience is not going to be just a one-off. Anything that we experience or see or how we've reacted to things, we're not going to be the only person on earth who's reacted like that. And it can really help people's self-acceptance to recognise that other people are sharing something of that experience. So the principle of universality, that helps people have a sense of belonging, a sense of connection. And I think that's the most powerful thing that would come across. But with that, it tends to lead to other kind of benefits, like that helps people be more self-accepting. And dare I say, more accepting of other people too, recognising that common humanity. And part of it's allowing oneself to be vulnerable and supporting other people when they're vulnerable. So people can be acknowledging their difficulties, warts and all, and yet still feel somewhat acceptable, somewhat human, and show maybe some level of self-compassion. Well, at least show compassion for others and in turn gradually develop more self-compassion for themselves. So it, you can imagine as well how one thing that can help with groups is seeing those commonalities, but also that there's some differences that come up. So that also allows for some differences in point of view. There's that multiplicity of viewpoints that comes in. And even seeing other people in a group modelling 
some kind of change or progress themselves. That can give hope, that can help. But also I think the other thing is people are actually learning from their interactions with each other. So in our lives where people have difficulty, that included many Vietnam veterans, it's in a social context. It's feeling social anxiety. It's feeling one doesn't fit in. It's not sure how to deal with conflict situations, not confident to speak up in certain ways, difficulty receiving compliments, maybe difficulty giving compliments. But when people are in a group situation, there's practice around those kind of things. And I think that's something that's really worthwhile. Well, absolutely. And, and it's one of the things that I really like about following sport, Dad, is the wisdom that so many coaches are able to impart. Because at the end of the day, all they are is a leader of a group. And all they can do is empower people to act in a way. And so there's so many great principles that come from some of these coaches, like Ange Postacoglu, current Celtic manager, is one who really comes to mind. The way he's able to unite a group of people from all around the world. You know, there's people who speak don't speak English as their first language and they're just able to buy into this idea of exactly what he wants the group to be. But also, you know, as a very popular man in our household at the moment, David Chris Scott, the Geelong coach, who's, who's recently won a, a premiership with Geelong, it reminded me what you were saying there of something that he said recently, talking about the makeup of a team and the makeup of a good team. And one of the things that he said was, you don't just want everyone to be straighty 180. In terms, you want a few people who are maybe a little bit of a, a maverick in certain ways and maybe think a little bit individually and can maybe, oh, I suppose, take the group to a, a slightly more innovative place than had they not been there. But I think that speaks to the idea that you were talking about in terms of celebrating the differences within the group. Like that idea of universality seems to be about cultivating similarities and it's interesting, like when you were describing that there, I think, you know, there's a reason that we all wear our footy jumpers to go watch the team or we all, you know, don the colours of the team that we support. In some ways, to me, it's almost to evoke that sense of universality. But then the other element of it is that element of, well, everyone does have their individual personality that they can bring to the group and is going to benefit the group if they are able to maybe leverage some of their differences in the context of the similarity of everyone else in the group as well. Yes, and I think a classic example of that, I'll look, I'll use another football example, Bob Murphy, a champion footballer from the Western Bulldogs Football Club. And actually, it's going back a long way. It was 2012, but I did some positive psychology groups with the Western Bulldogs Club. So it was wonderful to at least have the brief opportunity to facilitate groups with their leadership group and some of the younger players, different groups of players. But something I noticed over time is there are some characters who are especially helpful for accepting that diversity that you mentioned. And one of them, I learnt this more from subsequent radio interviews from anything that I observed directly at the time, but Bob Murphy was someone who was a bit of a maverick with his sense of humour. He liked different kinds of music that wasn't necessarily the most widely followed popular music, but he liked that way that people could have a different characteristic to themselves and put that forward, and he modelled that. And I think that's wonderful when people aren't just meant to be, as you say, straighty 180. And I think that the most helpful environments are ones where, as it happened in those days, one of the most wonderful things I thought was that the coach, Brendan McCartney, was so interested in the players and often emphasised that with the younger players, he's interested in their well-being. 
it wasn't just their sporting performance, because I'm certainly not a sports psychologist and I don't work so much in the performance area, but certainly working in the mental health area, I'm on about well-being. And that's why he wanted me to be involved in those players. And a number of those players had experienced some very challenging situations in the past that had really dented their confidence in certain ways. And I know that there are a couple of players that when I said to them, look, I know your coach is really interested in you as a person because otherwise I wouldn't be here. I'm not a performance coach. I've got nothing to do with that. I'm here about people's well-being. And sure, that's probably not going to hurt people's performance in any way, but that's not the main purpose why I'm here. It's to help people's development as people. He's really interested in that. And you tend to get that in any group too. There's a culture that's going to be influenced by the people at the top. It's going to be influenced by everyone within the culture, but certainly that leadership makes a difference. And I think acceptance of differences. People don't have to be just some kind of cookie cutter. There's different ways that people can contribute strengths and attributes that they bring. And the champion teams, as they say, you can have a team of champions, but to have a champion team, you're going to have to have healthy group processes around that where everybody has their place to belong. Well, it seems that what, you know, good sporting teams and, and, you know, certainly good football teams, but I suppose all, all good groups, what they're able to do is almost reverse engineer some of particular set of characteristics of a group. And obviously universality is one of those that we've spoken about before, but I believe there was a set of characteristics uh, by Irvin Yalom that he came up with that basically speak to these ideas of what makes up a good group. What are some of those characteristics? Yes, so Irvin Yalom, a wonderful psychotherapist, he actually wrote a wonderful book called Love's Execution, and I won't go into that further, but all sorts of books on psychotherapy. But I first learned about group therapy process from Irvin Yalom's book about groups, and he described five core principles. So universality was one, also altruism. So considering the benefits for other people, looking to assist other people in the group as well. Installation of hope. And that would partly be from seeing other people make progress in a group and thinking, well, I might as well. Imparting. So in other words, conveying knowledge. Not just the knowledge of a group leader, but also the experience of other participants in the group. And also the way he put it, it just shows how our early family experiences strongly influence us in any groups in life. That's like our original template for relating to others in a group. So he described it as a corrective recapitulation of the primary family experience or a corrective way of learning to adapt differently from how we tended to adapt the patterns that we had that might follow on from our family experience. In other words, we can shift and adjust and nudge and change a bit how we relate to other people. If, for example, in someone's family, they tend to not speak up so much or someone else in their family tend to be very self-sacrificing or someone else in their family tend to get caught up in conflicts in a certain kind of way. When we're in any kind of group, this can even include certain work groups and teams that you're involved with for quite a period of time. It's actually an opportunity to make shifts in our interpersonal reactions and, say, how we deal with conflict. Well, that's, uh, yeah, very interesting. Certainly something that we've spoken about before, the influence of our childhood before. But I think, you know, without necessarily knowing that, like, I think we can all relate to maybe having patterns in groups so it's interesting that, yeah, that, that does relate to childhood. Potentially it allows us to identify things a little bit more. Yes, and I think that what we're talking about in this podcast as well, it's not just about people being in therapy groups, but if people are in ongoing work groups, 
or when people think of their families when you get together, to think of these other aspects of, of groups like the altruism, considering other people, imparting experience, being able to renew our connections with other people in different ways. There are opportunities in all walks of life when we're part of a voluntary group or a sporting team, a working group, certainly our families, our wider friendship groups, there are always opportunities for look at how we interact with other people and how we connect with other people. And Dad, you told me something off air about being in a group and the idea of tasks and maintenance and how I suppose there's multiple functions of a group. Do you want to just tell us about what those multiple functions are? Yes, well, any group we're in, whether it be a work group or a volunteer group or a sporting team, there's two dimensions to what the group's on about. There's the task, so how it's looking to perform or what objectives it has, and maintenance is about the social glue, the social connections in the group. And every single group we have is going to have those two things. Now, you can imagine, well, just say if people are students at a university and they're studying as part of a group, now, particularly they're wanting to get through the course, so part of it is having that focus on a task, but also that's where many people will be making friendships as well. So there is also that purpose, say for many people, of also getting on well with other people. Some people might be so busy that they're doing the course part-time on top of their usual work and they might not be quite so interested in the social side. They're really on about, say, getting a qualification, so it's about the task. So, But still, both of those factors will apply. Now, if someone's so focused on their work as, say, a work leader or a director, you know, some people might have technical expertise and they're promoted to be the supervisor on a team. And they might think, I'm going to show my team how to use this technical expertise as, say, a mechanic or an architect. Now, if that person isn't thinking of the maintenance factors, like how people get on or that social glue or people feeling connected with each other, they're not ultimately going to go so well with the task either. You have to consider that. But by the same token, if a group is mainly a social group, say people are getting together for a reunion, you know, like say 10 years down the track or 30 years down the track, well, people are mainly meeting for the purpose of their social connection, but you also maybe need a task, like some kind of focus or activity, like going out for a meal together. So someone has to book a venue and that kind of thing. So any group is going to have those two dimensions and we might as well recognise the value of each. Sometimes the task is most important, like for a particular work group, if they're, I suppose, even fighter pilots working with each other. Well, then it's going to be strong, actually, for them to also have very strong relationships that they can trust each other as well. But particularly, they're looking to achieve certain kind of goals, develop certain kind of skills. But when we think of any situation we're in, just say a family situation as well, there's a lot of emphasis on the maintenance like in other words, our social relationships, but also you need different things to happen for a family to function as well. So it's just recognising that those things apply in every group we're in. Oh, I think that's so interesting. And, you know, like what, what that sort of, you know, led me to think is, you know, one thing that was, I suppose, maybe a little bit tough about getting older, Dad, was, you know, going away to university and then, you know, I went to university up in Canberra and we all moved away afterwards. And so, like, it seemed to me that, you know, looking back on that group, which to me was such a strong group of people, it was like at that time we had the task and the maintenance. And then it was almost like all of a sudden, without realising it, the task was gone. 
And so it simply became about the maintenance. And so, you know, there's, there's a whole range of people who, you know, we're, we're able to maintain our friendship. But at the same time, I think it does become harder without the task. So it's very interesting, I think, to have a sense of those two elements of what a group are. But the other thing that led me to think about that is that I remember one time you, you telling me about the stages of groups and... I actually think it was in the context of potentially, you know, going away from university and feeling sad about the fact that that group of friends who I'd felt so close to weren't going to be able to spend that time anymore. And and you told us about the stages of groups, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, but one of those stages was a journey. And so we will go through the stages at the moment, but I wonder if, if part of what that a journey is, is that, you know, potentially there is a time in a group when the tasks run out <laughs> and we don't necessarily want to just be, you know, be side by side. We want to, you know, go off into the world in our own new directions. But I think if we have a sense of, you know, well, we can still have the maintenance aspect of the group. We can still hold on to our friendships from that even if the task is gone. Well, that to me anyway makes it a lot easier to even just think about how to go about doing that. Yes, there are a number of things there, like to be most fully ourselves we will share interests with other people, like doing a course, be part of a group of friends, as you say. But over a period of time, especially over quite a period of time, we're going to be going in different directions. And that's actually one of the sad things of life that builds in grief and loss right from the start. It also gets back to that existential issue, like all of us are going to die. That's a tragic notion in itself. And yet, there's a lot that makes life worthwhile, but we might as well acknowledge that life is finite. But that also means that our group experience is finite. Any time we're with a particular group of friends, it might be a long-term group of friends, but there are going to be changes that happen with that. Someone will move away or, well, we might move away for different reasons. Loss and separation is a part of life. And actually, that is one thing about groups which mimics that process of life. You know, there are going to be beginnings, there are going to be endings, and there are going to be cycles like that. But also, like you say, when people have made strong friendships at a particular time of life, so long as there's a bit of effort that people put in, like a bit of task still happening to get together, then you can maintain a lot of those close friendships. But yes, yeah, I might say a little bit more about the stages of groups. Well, yeah, like, let's get into them now because, as you say, all groups do, I think, go through those cycles. And it's been fascinating for me because, you know, as I say, I reckon you told me about this a few years ago and every single group I've ever been in has followed this same process. Like, I think once you have an understanding of it, you just recognise it everywhere. So, Dad, what are the stages of, of a group? Okay, so there's five different stages and one of the most interesting one is a second stage, but I'll describe it. There's forming, the group forms. People have a reason to get together. Then there's storming. So it's normal for there to be a stage where there's a degree of conflict or questioning of what this group is on about. And people might be jockeying for position a bit. There might be a question of who's in leadership roles, but also people might not be happy with the way it's progressing in some ways. Then there's norming, meaning people follow through from this storming stage and conflict of getting some broad understanding of how it's going to work. If people didn't go through that norming stage, then the group would just dissipate at the storming stage. Then there's the performing. So it's what the group is there to do. That's the task aspect. Getting things done. It could be a work group or it could be a study group or it could be just enjoying each other's company. Regularly meeting as a book club or something like that. And then there's, as you say, a journey. 
there'll be an end to that. But what I find most helpful about understanding this group process is to understand that storming is normal. To some extent, we're going to be used to this in our families. All families are going to have some level of conflict and how people deal with conflict is going to be relevant to the overall health of the family, the quality of relationships in the family. But what often people aren't used to is in a work group, it's normal to have storming. Or in my experience, we have a a synchronicity group, an international group of mainly authors on books on synchronicity or people really interested in that area or have done films on synchronicity. Now we've got such a strong, shared, passionate interest But as our group was developing over the last couple of years through the pandemic, there were times when there's quite a degree of storming going on, there's conflict. And at first, if people are a little bit naive to that, they're thinking, wait a minute, there's a lot of wise, mature people here, many in their 60s and 70s, and they've got lots of life experience, and they're often healthy and positive. Hey, this is a bit strange. Um, This person's not getting on with this one, or people are really questioning what the group's about. No, that's normal. And when you recognise that, It helps go through that stage and then collaboratively work out what the norms will be. How are we going to go about this so we can perform better, so we can all get more out of it, what we want? Well, I think that is such an interesting stage, that storming stage, because as well, like it suggests, you know, if we're coming into a group, like we're going to get the most out of it if we, and I don't even necessarily want to say give up something of ourselves, but if we approach the group openly and sort of say, hold on, I'm not just going to impose my, you know, individual personality over everyone here. It's almost like you you sit back a little bit and you think, oh, I wouldn't mind things going in this direction, but you're open to other people's suggestions as well and that sort of thing. So, yeah, certainly I think that's a, a very interesting phase. But the other thing that I find really interesting about this is like I've almost heard it sometimes where the fifth step in the process is mourning instead of adjourning in terms of your mourning almost like the the death of the group which is a little bit melodramatic in a way but it's this sense of you know it's the end of the group you know not necessarily adjourning but the way that I almost think about it now is that you're either going to adjourn or mourn in terms you know that last step of the process it's either something that's a little bit proactive and you might be able to have say a gathering where you all get together and celebrate mark the end of a a project or a, a group of time spent together or whatever it is or things just over time are just going to sort of naturally dissipate a little bit and potentially you just kind of all of a sudden look back and and go oh that that group's not there in the same way that it was anymore it's taken on a different form and function or it doesn't quite feel or I don't quite feel that I belong to that group as much. So there's this sense of mourning if you're not proactive about how you go about almost the adjourning of the group, which as you say, like it's it's in some ways tragic, but like I've found anyway that like, for example, if you, if you make that effort to almost adjourn with purpose and sort of say, hey, you know, this is well, the context that I now think about it is, you know, we're, we're over the task sort of side of things. Let's just maybe put some systems in place that, you know, we'll ha- have a bit of maintenance and, and still be able to catch up. But it's an acceptance of, well, maybe it's a new form that the group needs to take. Yes, I think it can be very helpful to directly acknowledge the journey of a group. And that's where many groups will have some kind of celebration at the end. And it could be people going through a university course or a work team that's come together for a period of time, or it might be even just a group of people who've met at a conference or something like that. The more a group has been involved with each other, the more it helps to have some kind of ritual to directly acknowledge that saying goodbye. But then I think often 
the adjourning and the mourning will go together because that is that aspect of life. There is that separation and loss. There is that positive connection we've had with people and then we've got our reason to part ways. And that's a natural part of the grief of life. And I think that to acknowledge that bittersweet feeling when a group has maybe achieved its purpose or run its course, to be able to acknowledge and celebrate, appreciate what was involved in that, but also be ready to move on because that actually might sometimes create room for us to be involved in new projects and new groups. Well, I think that's that's very true, Dad. And, you know, we're, we're sitting here the day after Joel Selwood, my hero, for those who know the uh, the great captain of the Geelong Football Club. Like, what a, what a man. And so as you say that, it's rather poignant at the moment in terms of having such a spiritual leader of that group move on to something else. But, Dad, there's just one thing I wanted to, to speak about. And oh, it's a little bit sort of speculative in some ways, I'd almost call it, in terms of I haven't seen a whole lot of people kind of speak about this, but it's something that I've sort of really been thinking about. And it's this idea of memes within a group and, you know, not your sort of square pictures that you send to each other on the internet, but meme almost in terms of like the Richard Dawkins idea of a meme, almost like a, a idea that can replicate itself amongst other people sort of thing and I think it's this fascinating thing within groups and particularly sort of sporting organisations is the context that I came across it in first started thinking about it in but it's the way that sporting organisations are able to almost instill these memes which are like ideas or their conveyed values or their almost unifying sentiments that a say team or club is able to put out and everyone else can buy into that even if they've never been to the city watch the team play live you can feel a real part of that and like for example you know Geelong obviously that we've spoken about but Newcastle United is my English soccer team and I, I spent a little bit of time over there and you know it's funny when I talk to people about Newcastle United so little of what I'm actually really thinking about and almost conceptualizing deep within myself is the football team you know to me it's it's the way that the, the club is inculcated in that town. It's the way that it's the hub of everyone of that local community. And, and obviously, you know, the Geordies have got an almost national identity, the way that they express that. But there's almost these themes that come across from the club. I can, you know, watch the team and my team, Newcastle United, feels absolutely distinct from all other teams that it plays against, even though in so many ways they're similar, it may have players who used to play on other teams, but somehow the kind of team environment is able to create this culture that permeates beyond just the four walls of the club. And I find it so fascinating in sport, like the way that we have, for example, mascots that are often animals that have a sentiment like it might be you know a lion or a tiger or a gorilla or you know maybe a cat's a little bit now obviously sort of you know that, that was a a weaker moment on them but oh. maybe there weren't so many left yeah exactly so oh, i think uh they got in a little bit later on that one but at the same time it's to portray a, a certain theme or an idea that people can latch onto and almost belong with if they also value those ideas too. And it's just one of those things like, oh, I think sport does it so well with, you know, whether it be things like, you know, uniforms and, you know, well, look at Joel Selwood for you. I will indulge myself for just a moment. Like the way that he conducted himself on the weekend and made things about, you know, just about everyone but himself. Like to me, you know, 
that's more about just the event of what he did, like the way that he was able to get Sammy Morefoot, the the training assistant, out from the crowd. Like, you know, Sammy does a great job. I've actually sort of seen him down at training a couple of times, and he does a great job. But in some ways, to me, what that represented is, you know, we're all included in that team, that Sam could be someone who, you know, is there at training and he's, you know, helping him at training. But he was on the field as a, a fully-fledged team member and they put their, you know, medal around his neck and they said to him, come to our med Monday, you're part of our team. Like, to me, that almost, you know, it says to everyone, you know, you're a part of this team. It's, you know, where the meme is inclusion, for lack of a better term. And so it's just one of the things that I love about sport, how they're able to portray these ideas. And and it seems that I think all groups are a little bit like that. Like every group that you're in, there are going to be these memes or these values that come across. And it seems to me that the more that we can almost be proactive with that sort of thing, like it just helps to inculcate everyone into the group and to... I suppose, yes, yeah, spread the themes of the group and, and to help the group maybe perform in terms of uh, those stages as well. Yes, now very much what you're talking about there with memes and the way you describe it, yeah, very descriptively, it is about the norming stage of groups. It's that notion of shared values. And I know something that, say, the Geelong Football Club talk about is you recruit people for character because you can train skills And so it's saying, look, it's not just about performance at the start, it's the character that's important. And that's where I might look at another example. We talked about the How to Thrive documentary, that group program, which is partly how we got onto this group topic. What are going to be the norms of a positive psychology group program? It's about being optimistic. It's about looking at strengths. You can still acknowledge vulnerability. It's more real to acknowledge that people can struggle. And I really like the way in that documentary it really highlights it doesn't sugarcoat people's struggles at all but it's ultimately about this preparedness to struggle in a positive way acknowledge strengths be accepting and also look to be open to recognizing the good in oneself as well as others they'd be some of the memes that i think come up in positive psychology and it certainly seems from that How to Thrive group, like there's a, a real validation, I think, that comes from finding like-minded people. And, you know, talking about those stages there, forming, storming, norming, performing and adjourning, you know, like norming and performing, like they're sort of the stages to me that relate to like-minded people. But you can sort of, you know, you can form and storm and sort of create that over time as well. It's not as if you just have to, you know, find your tribe of people who immediately you're going to connect with and, you know, that's, it's either going to work or it's not. Like, it seems to me that you you can work on these things a little bit over time and you can cultivate some of the like-mindedness that is so validating. Absolutely. And like any other stages, things go back and forth a bit. It's not just a linear thing. So a group might be performing very well and people might think of their work groups or conflict coming up in their families or their friendship groups. And there might be this conflict comes up that's quite uncomfortable. But again, it's remembering the value of the group to that person. You know, what they've got out of forming, being part of that group. Um, What they've got in the past about some of the norms that they thought have helped what they've gained from the performing, you know, like the kind of tasks or their purpose of being in that group. And that can help people get through the inevitable times lapses back to a storming stage. That's not just unhealthy. It's just that there are aspects of life we've talked about before, order and chaos. Things aren't always going to be in a state of improving order the whole time. So it's partly how we deal with that kind of challenge when it comes up. 
Well, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. And last week too, it was, like, as you say, it was almost a bit of good luck that the documentary's coming out to, uh, to come on to these topics. But, yeah, well, I think it's a really good topic and it's something that, you know, I think it's going to be important to think about because, you know, I mentioned a little bit last week that, you know, we're, we're coming through a period where I think everyone's been pretty isolated. We've certainly been relatively more isolated over the last couple of years than we really ever have been before. And so I think if we can almost be proactive about how we go about constructing some groups for ourselves and involving ourselves in groups and recognising the benefits from those, uh, it seems to me that, yeah, that we're going to get out certainly what we put in in terms of this sort of thing. So if we can maybe find a few groups that are worth putting into and where we do feel, you know, validated and energised, well, it seems to me you can just get so much out of that. Yes, and I hope a number of people who listen to this podcast and some of the principles of groups, hope a number of people will be able to get along to that How to Thrive documentary, which is screening around Australia very soon after this podcast comes out. Probably when it comes out, it'll be screening in a number of places. And I imagine if people have heard this podcast and see that film about this positive psychology group program, you'll recognise some of these themes that come up and some of the ways that the group benefited people so much as part of their experience. Well, certainly, and, you know, I mentioned last week that I, I haven't seen the How to Thrive documentary, Dad, but I feel a little bit more equipped to now to maybe get a little bit more out of it than I would have had, had we not had these couple of episodes. So thanks for chatting with me about all this. I've, I've really enjoyed these ones, and I'll tell you what stimulated my thinking a little bit. Maybe it's just on the back of a Geelong premiership, and I'm just the biggest nuffy I'll ever be at the moment, but I'll tell you what, it's a fascinating topic and, and something I think everyone can really benefit from. Excellent. Rona, we'll have a link for those screenings as well on this podcast episode page.